If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Susan Leto to discuss her new book, The Power of Ethics. And in conversation with the journalist and writer Josh Lowe, they discussed how we can think about making ethical decisions in a complicated world. It's a really fascinating conversation that touches on a lot of the themes and issues that have sprung up during the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Susan's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Josh Lowe. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Susan Lioto. Susan is founder and managing director of Susan Lioto and Associates Limited, a consultancy on ethics matters. And she also teaches at Stanford University and is the author of the new book, The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World, which is going to frame uh, a lot of our discussion today. Uh, So welcome, Susan. Where are you speaking to us from today? Thank you for having me, Josh. Uh, I'm actually in Paris, where I've been on shelter at home since August. Oh, great. And what's uh, what's the current state of lockdown like there? Well, we have a 6 p.m. curfew. We have mandatory masks, which actually has been quite effective. And for most of the rest of the day, we can be out and about a little bit, but there isn't much open other than basic stores. Okay, so it's a little more freedom than us in London, actually. And we're going to come on at some point um, in this conversation, I hope, to talk a little bit about some of those choices and balancing those freedoms um, in the pandemic. So, um Uh, Yeah, always interesting to hear everyone's different experience of it. But before we get into that, as as I just said, the main title of your new book um, is The Power of Ethics. But quite core to the book is a concept which I believe is the title of one of your Stanford classes, um, Ethics on the Edge. And I just wondered if before we get any further, you could briefly sort of define for us the idea that you refer to a lot in the book of the edge. Because there's a sort of space within which ethical decisions are taken. I think it'll be quite familiar uh, to a lot of our listeners. Well, when I started looking at all kinds of stories that show up on our lives in different ways, whether it's when we're younger and studying in school or whether it's in the news or in our personal lives, I realized that the law is less and less able to guide us, less and less able to prevent harm. And so what I refer to as the edge is that gap between where the law is functional as guidelines and as prevention and the the reality that we live in. So much of it is technological, but some of it isn't. And so in that space in between, and I should say that that space is increasing because technology is developing faster and faster and the law isn't keeping pace. So in that increasing space, 
where do we look for the guidance? And that's where ethics is taking on more and more responsibility. Um, absolutely. And, and, and then while we're on the basics, and, and I want to get into a lot of this in, in more depth uh, very soon, I promise, but, but another core component of the book I thought it would be good to, to understand um, off the bat is, is a kind of simple four-step framework uh, for ethical decision-making. You give four questions that readers can ask themselves as they consider the choices before them in situations that arise in this, this tricky space called, uh, called the edge. Could you just quickly summarize uh, for us what those four questions are and, and why they matter? Sure. Well, one of the reasons that I developed these four questions, and they're actually four words, so that they're very easily recallable and they become a habit, um, is that I felt that ethical decision-making seemed overwhelming for a lot of people. And one of my missions in the book is to democratize ethics, to make ethical decision-making accessible, even enjoyable, just part of our everyday way we see the world and make choices, big choices and small choices. So the four parts are the following. The first is principles, and we each have our own principles. And, and I quickly define principles as the guides to your decision-making. So not rules, not everyone must, mer- must wear a mask or the speed limit is 35 kilometers an hour, but rather things like compassion or integrity or truth. And everyone chooses their, their own principles. I wouldn't presume to choose principles for you or for anyone else. The second is information. We live in a world in which there's so much information, and at the same time, we very often lack the information that we need to make the decisions. And so what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't be on a wild goose chase for every last piece of information. We should quickly assess either we're in a situation where we have the information we need, or we're seeing that there's a very big gap. And we just need to be mindful of the fact that we're making decisions without that information. So, for example, if you're going to purchase a 23andMe home genetic testing kit, you really don't know whether your data could end up at your insurance company or what happens to your data if that company is sold. So you're taking a bit of a bet, but the main thing is just to be aware that there's this gap in the information. Uh, The third is stakeholders, and I define stakeholders as anybody or anything that can affect your decision or that your decision will influence. And the key thing about stakeholders in this edgy world that I describe is that some of the stakeholders for our decisions are we may never meet. Some may actually be in subsequent generations. So an example of that would be a story you, you and others may have seen in the news with a Chinese scientist, Hu Jin Kui, who gene edited the embryos of twin babies. That affects the human germline if he's done what he says he does, and, and I'm understanding scientists properly that can affect subsequent generations. So we have to really think far and wide about the stakeholders. Similarly, on social media, we never know sometimes where our postings may end up and who, may, who they may affect and how. And then finally, the consequences over time. And the message there is that we need to be thinking short, medium, and long-term all at the same time. We can't sort of do our short-term thinking and then move on an hour from now, do more short-term thinking. We need to be thinking in multiple time frames at the same time. And what really came through to me from that is it's, and as you say, it's it's simple and it's memorable, um, at least in its form. Um, but of course, what what comes across there is perhaps the the complexity to some of the decisions that we all make that we maybe sometimes don't think about in the way that we should. And and when I was reading the book, uh, both the framework and and the subsequent ideas. 
I was thinking about how kind of timely it was to be reading something, looking at that, looking at the complex, uh, weighty choices that we all face, given the kind of ethical decisions that the pandemic has put before um, each of us in our personal lives, probably without exception. And you say in the epilogue, I think, that you began writing the book before coronavirus was sort of part of our collective okay. vocabulary. And when when the pandemic came around, how did it inform your thinking on these kinds of questions? Did it change anything or did it clarify anything? So in the book, I identify six forces and I try to help the readers see these six forces everywhere in every ethical dilemma we face to varying degrees. And that becomes kind of an instant guide. It's almost like when you hear a name, all of a sudden you see it everywhere. You see it on the side of a bus and you see it on a salesperson's name tag. Well, these six forces, you, you start to see everywhere in the world and with every decision. And so it didn't change my thinking at all, but all of the six forces apply to the coronavirus and to many different aspects of the many different decisions. So um, to take one, one of the forces I call scattered power. In a nutshell, power is scattered more than ever before. Individuals could do anything from tutor a child on the other side of the planet through a cell phone to commit a terrorist act with a cell phone. But the coronavirus gives us each quite a lot of power. We can wear a mask and save a life. We can socially distance and save a life. Or we can be sloppy and not respect what scientists and medical experts are telling us we need to do in order to sort of do our part. So that's one example. But there are many examples within the coronavirus as to how they map, map out with the six forces. Absolutely. And uh, the sort of number of examples one could come up with is almost kind of dizzying. I, I thought it might be interesting, actually, to, to see if you could kind of illustrate something of your framework or your ideas as applied to a particular kind of pandemic-related ethical question, which seemed to me like a good instance of sort of decision-making on the edge. Over the early summer here um, in the UK, we had sort of relatively low numbers of coronavirus cases after our spring lockdown. But the disease was definitely still present and we knew it could pose a big threat again, as unfortunately, where I'm sitting in London, very much has. Meanwhile, our hospitality sector had been hit very hard by lockdown. Local restaurants were struggling, jobs were under threat. It became clear quite quickly that the government's prescription for this was to get people to go to restaurants rather than supporting those restaurants heavily from the public purse. And they launched a food discount scheme called Eat Out to Help Out, which prompted some jokes that I won't repeat on a family podcast. But <laughs> anyway, as an individual, one was faced with a choice. Do you go and eat and help out, as it were, your local restaurant? Or do you act cautiously for fear of the disease and its potential future impacts on other people and yourself, regardless of whether you are allowed to go out or not? And I know there's no kind of right answer to such a question, but how would you use your framework to kind of work through a decision on that that you felt ethically comfortable with? Well, perhaps I'll, I'll start by using this example to illustrate the six forces that we see in all these decisions. So the first force I say is that, you know, we have an epidemic of binary thinking right now. You know, Brexit is an example, in or out, Trump's wall, one side or the other, yes or no, do it or don't do it. But in all of these decisions, including the one that you just outlined, we really are kind of mucking around in the gray. And the question is, how do we seize opportunity and mitigate risks? So that's the first force is kind of banishing binary thinking. 
So, you know, hopefully there would be a way to do some eating out safely. For example, in San Francisco, my original hometown, restaurants were outside, tables were spaced, there were mask uh, rules, there were various rules around how food was handled, etc. And and I should say my heart goes out to all in the restaurant and the hospitality industry. It's 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 terribly difficult and it's terribly disproportionately unfair. But beyond that, economists, and I'm not an economist, but economists tell us that if we don't get the pandemic under control, in addition to the human consequences, there will be further economic consequences. So we need to balance. And there are point, there's a point at, wh- at which the risks, we, we need to manage the health risks. And I should say at the outset that in a pandemic, the place to look for how to do that is the scientists and the medical experts. We must be following the guidelines of the, of the scientists and the medical experts. So the second is what I mentioned earlier, the scattered power. We each have a lot of power in how we do things. We can walk into a Starbucks with a mask, we can respect the distance, or we can do neither and potentially put other people at risk. We can wash our hands, use gel, etc., or not. So that's pretty simple. The third force is what I call contagion of unethical behavior. So just like the virus spreads and even mutates, unethical behavior spreads and mutates. And there are all manner of things around those choices. They can be things like people not respecting the health and safety guidelines. They can be things like people spreading false information on the internet. So the ethics underneath it all is also contagious. The fourth I call crumbling pillars. So things like informed consent and transparency, you know, in a world of on the edge, in a pandemic world that we've never seen before that is unprecedented, It's very tricky because we don't really know what we're consenting to. We don't really fully understand all of it. Even the best experts with the greatest level of transparency are sometimes struggling to tell us what we need to know and what matters for us. So these choices we're making, we're sort of feeling like we're not quite fully consenting. And in fact, if we look at the case of vaccines, the French government has recently gone overboard and said everybody for a vaccine has to have sort of a 30-minute health visit and go through this informed consent process, which is the other extreme. It's slowing things down so much that they have a dismally low vaccination record. The fifth is blurred boundaries. So I talk a lot in the book about blurred boundaries between man and machine. So where you might see that in the restaurant industry is literally robots flipping burgers or other ways that we can engage machines contactless using machines so that we're minimizing risk and maximizing opportunity. And then finally, what I call compromised truth, really making sure everybody's telling the truth that we're, as I said, relying on the science. And so that when we go out and make these choices, we're, we're making them based on fact and not based on opinion and, and rumor and the like. But these are very, very difficult choices. And The governments around the world have responded differently. And, you know, I think it's a lot of the burden in that particular situation is put on individuals when, in fact, the experts should be telling us yes or no, it's safe to be in restaurants. And if it's not safe, then we need another route to to helping those restaurants survive. Absolutely. And of course, that's one of the major complexities in, in lots of these issues is is sometimes the power rests with us almost when it uh, kind of shouldn't. But but as you said as well, nonetheless, regardless of, of even if uh, the government's kind of behaved with the best will in the world, the pandemic has, as as you put it there and in the book, um, sort of scattered power and it has vested all of us with a, a degree of power. And something that I'm interested in is to you, 
you know, from my perspective, it's often felt like during this pandemic, I have been facing more complicated ethical choices in my personal life in the past year than I could have expected to before. And I was wondering whether you think that's true as such, or, or uh, you know, has the coronavirus kind of increased the ethical weight of our day-to-day choices? Or, or is there an extent to which the pandemic's just made all these concepts you just illustrated kind of clearer to us, has revealed to us that in fact, everything we do, pandemic related or not, normal times or no, influences, is influenced by stakeholders, has consequences, and so on. So every ethical decision that we face, whether it's, you know, should police use facial recognition technology, or should we click I agree on Netflix, can be understood and navigated through the quick framework and the sort of looking for the six forces that I outline in the book. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that we all have been facing unprecedented level of ethical choices around the pandemic. And there are a number of reasons for that. First, it's unprecedented, so we don't fully understand it. And there's a lot of fear, and there's a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of feeling that we each have a lot of weight. And on top of that, we're doing that in conditions of isolation. We're doing that in, you know, some people, very terrible conditions of loss, illness, economic stress. So, so that adds to the burden. But the other thing about the pandemic is that, you know, human life is at stake. So in some of the other decisions we make, we as individuals are not responsible for making choices that affect human life, or at least not ones where they're just so clear in our minds that there is no issue. We wouldn't run red light. We wouldn't drive under the influence of alcohol. But all of a sudden, each of us, this this scattered power, you you know, you put it so well, this scattered power has just put a weight on each of us because we really can do harm and, and almost unknowable harm. Because if we pass along an illness that we may have even though we don't have symptoms, we might pass it along to someone who's 18 who might recover, but they might pass it along to their 90-year-old grandmother. So we have no idea. That's my stakeholder's point. We have no idea in our decision-making, say, for example, not to wear a mask, just how far the stakeholders could reach. So I think it's hugely stressful. And and one of the things I try to do in the book, um, there's a chapter in the book called Ethics on the Fly, is I try to say, some decisions really are very important, like this, like the decisions around vaccination, around how we're going to behave around the pandemic. But not everything, you know, nobody has all day, every day to be thinking about the ethics of their decisions. So sometimes we actually have all the information we need. Or uh, to use the example I just gave of Netflix, I know the company isn't going to sell my data. They tell me that. I'm not giving them my DNA. So it's not that big a deal. It's entertainment. And I'm the first to say, I press on... I agree, and I don't read a single word of the terms of reference. You know, on the other hand, 23andMe, where you are giving up your DNA, or choices around COVID, yeah, I would press pause and think of it. Absolutely. And I was sort of thinking there, you know, you talk about some of the kind of day-to-day decisions we're faced with around the pandemic being unusual for their kind of life or death impact. Another set of kind of timely decisions or behaviors that kind of 
arose for me when I was reading the book is uh, stuff relating to one of the forces you just outlined there, the uh, concept of kind of compromised truth, which I think is uh, resonant everywhere, perhaps maybe uh, especially resonant in some ways in recent years in the US context, where you've been teaching students and so on, but, but, but all around the world. And that, you know, touches on the actions of the powerful. And it also touches on some of the ways that we behave in our day to day communication. So could you just explain a bit firstly about what you see as the sort of forces that have led to truth becoming compromised? What, what do you mean by that? So we have had an increasing disrespect for the truth. And it, there, there are a number of different forces. One is that social media has driven this contagion of this what I, of compromised truth. So one puts some disinformation on the internet, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, and all of a sudden, you know, it goes viral or it collects in bubbles of people and it spreads much further and much faster than it, it would have in any other era. So the reach of it, an example is, is to your very good point about the U.S., you know, recent events in Washington, you put something like inciting violence, you know, and instantaneously millions of people see it. And millions of people might respond to it and react to it. So there's the scope and the virality of it that's really a problem. There's also in political leadership, particularly in the U.S., and, and I'm, you know, I, I want to just be very clear. This, I'm, I mean this from a nonpartisan standpoint. The idea that somehow we could have alternative facts. Facts are facts. And we need to get back to a world in which we are very clear about what a fact is and very clear about what an opinion is. And they both have an important role to play in society, but they are not the same things. So even to give a simple example that one of my students gave in class, if it is 60 degrees outside, that is a fact. I may feel cold at 60 degrees. You may feel warm at 60 degrees. Your opinion may be that it's warm or cold, but 60 degrees is 60 degrees. And we've gotten to the point where this confusion of fact and opinion or utter dismissal of fact is, is hugely problematic. But there's another piece of this that I think we all need to face, and that is since 2016 in particular, there's been sort of a demise of expertise. And I think we need to pay very close attention to the responsibility of experts in all of this. And I say this very respectfully, but experts need to explain to people from all walks of life what they need to know and why it matters to them. We don't need to know every detail about how to code something. But we need to know that if police use facial recognition technology, it could be racially biased and it could result in terrible unfairness in the judicial system against black Americans, for example. So we need experts to play their role. And that's very, very true in the pandemic also. We need to understand what is happening. Why does it matter for us? What are our choices? And what do we not know that we should know? So again, an example in the pandemic is it would be good to know how the vaccines will work and how safe they will be for under 16, for children and teens. It would be good to know whether the vaccines actually prevent transmission. So, so I think that it's coming from a lot of different angles. And then finally, I would just say an example I use in the book is this concept of curation on social media. Very innocent and sometimes very positive social media engagement. We pick and choose things. And the result is that what we're presenting is a cherry-picked life. And that has all kinds of implications for whether people really get to know truly us, not that we owe anyone to give us our, their full selves, but what people get to know, and also mental health consequences and all the rest. But to be absolutely clear, there is no such thing 
as ethics without truth. There's no such thing as alternatively factual ethics. And what, why would you say that is? Because that was going to be my next question almost. It sounds like a stupid question, but why does the truth matter? And in particular, you know, why does it matter to the topic that we're discussing here? Why does it matter to ethical decision making? So if we go back to my forward framework, truth, uh, absence of truth will disintegrate every single rung of the framework. So if you start with principles, most principles are truth-based. It's around honesty, integrity, transparency. But even if you take some, you know, some that are based on corporate greed, you still need to know, you know, for example, growth and profit like Uber had. You still need to know whether you had growth or profit truthfully. And, you know, in order to be able to hold account for living by your principles, you need truth. Second, the information rung of the framework, clearly garbage in, garbage out. So the information, if you're basing your, your decision on false information, it's not going to have a lot of validity. A different way of putting that is that you'll be making decisions, but they won't be grounded in reality. Third, the stakeholders, if you don't know who the, if you don't have truthful information, you can't figure out who the stakeholders are. So you're, you can't figure out the impact on you're having on different stakeholders. And similarly, you can't figure out the consequences if you don't have good information. So the whole thing disintegrates. Yeah, and that's very clear in the book how the whole kind of ground that you're you're sort of standing on or dealing with or making these calls on is is eroded all around you by this process. I am interested a little though in that when people talk about this kind of erosion of truth and this sort of post-truth world, it, it's certainly true to say on, on the one hand that we see lots of examples of facts being contested in a way that perhaps they once would not have been. How many people attend an, an inauguration ceremony, for example, may not once have been a point of debate uh, as it as it was a few years ago. At the same time, sometimes when people talk about not knowing what's true anymore, they're often talking in fact about being confronted with painful or inconvenient facts. You know, here in the UK, there's a very live debate around how we view ourselves as a nation and particularly our former actions as an imperial power. And you get academics, students, campaigners, institutions introducing new unpleasant facts to the public about our past actions. And they're often criticised, uh, particularly by the right, for sort of undermining our shared vision of ourselves as a country, our shared truth. So what about the idea that, that part of what's happened is less that a shared truth has been eroded and more that some of the shared truth that we once thought we enjoyed was always in many places something of a fantasy, a version of the truth presented by hegemonic forces whose ability to hide some of these facts has been eroded or compromised? So your question raises so many important points. One is part of what is different, especially in the last four years, is how much we value truth, whatever it is. So is that a principle for society? Is that a principle for us as individuals? Is that a principle for our leaders? I was just listening to a podcast of Fareed Zakaria's GPS, and he mentioned that in the administration, there was an expert who said there were 30,000 documented lies from the US president. But as we look to come together and to heal what is a very divisive time in a number of ways, politically, um, even in terms of how we're dealing with COVID, etc., that doesn't mean we all have to agree on the path forward, but we have to agree about what is a fact and what is not a fact. And to come back to the beginning of your question, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of facts that are very inconvenient. 
you know, it was not convenient for Georgetown University to, to discover its past with slavery. It's not very convenient for many uh, institutions to have to face that truth. But in order to heal, whether it's healing from slavery, which has been uh, very much topic in the U.S. And, and some to some extent in the U.K., or in order to heal from COVID, we need to start with the foundation of truth. Ethical resilience has to happen on a foundation of truth. And the fact that we have so many different lively debates is absolutely critical. That's why free speech is so important. Free speech is essential to truth. And including, as you say, experts bringing more to the table, debating, reinterpreting or interpreting history, etc. And an idea, I think, that's relevant to this this whole sort of subtopic of um, truth in um, in politics and discussion and, and how it relates to ethics is another of your kind of forces that you you spelled out earlier that particularly the notion of crumbling pillars and just to quickly unpack that that concept for listeners and please correct me if I'm summarizing this wrong you kind of argue in the book that expectations of ethical behavior have always been based on a mutual understanding of the reality in which decisions play out and this understanding rests on three pillars transparency which is the open sharing of important information, informed consent, agreeing to an action based on an understanding of that action and its consequences, and effective listening, um, so grasping the speaker's meaning. Each of those pillars could almost be a sort of whole podcast in itself. But, but given what we've been talking about on truth, I'd like to ask you particularly around the third, effective listening, because it seems relevant in particular to what we're trying to do right now, to have an informative, respectful, hopefully interesting conversation. What is going on as you see it with the way we listen to each other? And why does that matter for ethics? So listening is a very, very important part of human interaction, and it's a very important way to obtain information. And it comes up in so many different circumstances of our lives. Uh, It comes up, for example, between a doctor and a patient. But what has happened for a number of reasons is that we are more and more listening to what we want to hear or listening to what we... That's your cherry picking, by the way. That's your inconvenient truth. Listening to what we expect to hear. So, for example, one of the problems that comes up in in medical ethics is young doctors in particular, they think they know what they should be seeing. And so patients are telling them something, but they think they've got the diagnosis already figured out and they don't fully listen. Or the other, the final piece of it is we listen to what we think people should be feeling. I'll give you a, a really, what I found to be a very poignant example of that from the wonderful writer Ta-Nehisi Coates. And he writes about, um, he, he's an African-American gentleman who writes about an experience where he goes to visit the mother of a friend of his who was killed by police, a Howard University friend of his. And he's kind of talking to the reader about how he doesn't really know. It's so uncomfortable. It's such a difficult conversation. And he sort of wondered to himself, was he listening to what she was really saying? Or was he listening to what he thought she must be feeling? So we, we need to be careful that we're not projecting on others what we want to hear, what we expect to hear, or what we think they should be telling us or what we think they're actually feeling. And is there an extent to which these, these two forces kind of um, speak to each other almost, uh, pardon the pun, whereby you know, one way that we can get past this era of uh, sort of alternative facts or everything being kind of contested is 
sort of better listening and, and, and higher quality discussion of one kind or another? And, and how do we kind of get towards that? How do we learn to practice listening better? Well, I think your word practice is really important. The first step is to be aware of it. And I, and I try to be aware of it myself. So the first step is to be aware that we're doing this as a society. We're doing it individually. We're even doing it as institutions. And then the, and then the second is to try to be, to actually, you know, conversation by conversation, speech by speech, etc., uh, even in writing to do better. And again, my hand up first. But I think listening is absolutely critically important. What we're doing a lot of is talking past each other. And either the conversation has become so violent, literally violent, and the environment has become so divisive that people don't even want to listen. They don't even want to engage in dialogue. But this combination of free speech and having a conversation, we need to learn. I'll take the example of the U.S. We need to learn how to have a national conversation. We need to understand what is really going on because 74 million people voted for President Trump and we just heard that there were 30,000 examples of falsity since he became president. Now, politics aside, party, you know, partisanship aside, we need to understand what was going on in the minds of those voters. They're not all extremists who were committing illegal acts to attack the Capitol. They're intelligent, thoughtful Americans who really thought they were doing what was best for themselves and for the country. So listening is critical to having the kind of national conversation that we need to have for healing. I also believe it's critical to having the kinds of conversations that you started out with your first question about the conversation between the hospitality industry and those of us who really want to support it as consumers and the government. So we need to be having many different conversations, but starting with listening. Absolutely. And there's sort of a million other specific ideas um, I could delve into um, from the book. Uh, but I suppose, you know, we want to leave something for people to uh, to read in it um, themselves, which I do encourage people to, to do. But one bigger, more kind of fundamental question I had about the, the whole book and the, and the project that you've engaged in here, which, as you say, is around democratising ethical decision making, is this. It's, it's that you, you make a good case for this kind of thoughtful, ethical decision-making being more important now for, for many reasons, some of which we've touched on in this podcast, whether it is the widening nature of the edge, whether it is the new kinds of scattered power that, that forces such as the pandemic have delivered to us. There's lots in there that's a, a sort of a good case for why we should be thinking hard about this stuff and why it's really pressing that people get good at this stuff. But, but at the same time, I think there's an opposite case, which is that in a world that's so interlinked and where so much is dependent on the behavior of some very powerful entities, corporate, political, otherwise, it can often seem like our personal decisions matter less maybe than they ever have before. If we think back to a kind of hypothetical medieval peasant village society, you know, my actions as a member of that village had potentially huge weight in terms of the future survival and, and certainly health and thriving of the community. If we think now about some of the existential risks uh, my community, whether you define that as London, the UK, the world, faces, climate change, AI governance, future pandemics, and so on, the people who really have the power to shift the dial are fairly few in number in government and in boardrooms and in influential academic positions or whatever else. 
so, so the kind of core question, I suppose, is why should I bother to act ethically? Let's say climate change is important to me. Nonetheless, why should I bother to do my bit for the planet, as it were, when ultimately what matters is what, um, you know, big oil companies do and what the Chinese Communist Party decides to do and so on? It's a great question. And I would argue that both matter. So I had the privilege of interviewing Hollywood producer Norman Lear a couple of years ago. And he said to me over and over again, you know, every choice matters. Every plastic water bottle to your climate change point, every vote. So we certainly saw that a very big difference, you know, very, very thin margin in recent elections and in many recent elections. So every vote matters. One of the reasons our decisions matter is that I mentioned the contagion of unethical behavior but positive behavior can also be contagious. So to give you an example of Malala Yousafzai, the youngest Nobel laureate in history, look how she mobilized support for girls' education around the globe. Uh, celebrities, but not just celebrities, you know, individual young women in places with, with absolutely no support. So positive ethical behavior can be contagious. But to your very, very important point about the power that some of the big decision makers have, that is indeed part of what I'm arguing as well in the book, that they need to be mindful. They are the ones doing some of the scattering of power. They are the ones distributing, launching on society, social media or cell phones or, you know, gene editing kits that one can buy online for 35 pounds. So they need to be mindful of the power they're scattering and to whom. And they also need to be mindful of the fact that it is their responsibility and we need to make it their responsibility to listen to our voices. It's not because they are the experts in AI that they should make the decisions about how AI is unleashed on society. So I don't need to understand how algorithms work any more than I need to understand the wiring in my hairdryer. I can still understand you know, how and when I think things should be used and I should have a voice. And that's part of part of what I'm arguing in the book as well, that it's it's time to look at these technology behemoths, it's time to look at the, the, the government decision makers, not just in sort of classic terms of monopolies, but also in terms of how much powder, power they're scattering into whom, and also how uh, proactively they seize their responsibility to gather our voices and our input on how what they're doing impacts society. And I suppose some of that positive contagion, you know, creates a positive feedback loop insofar as some of these powerful people are at least partly accountable. And if the sort of the publics to which they are accountable are um, behaving in these ways or thinking about behaving in these ways, that will presumably feed back in, in the kind of in, in the uh, votes or other kinds of feedback that they deliver to those in power. But but in your uh, sort of consultancy work or uh, presumably in some of your advisory positions for example I think you're on the board of the UK Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation and, and other positions you, you presumably deal face to face with some of these more powerful decision makers some of the kinds of people we're talking about in your experience and it might very well be very hard to generalize but if so maybe you could take some examples what kinds of pressures hold these powerful decision makers back from taking decisions thoughtfully and um, ethically or from applying the kinds of principles or processes that you talk about in your book? So there's no question that some of them are functioning on, on money. Now, I don't advise the companies that I'm about to mention, but for example, Uber, you know, in, in the early days, Travis Kalanick, the founder, you know, just did you know, a brilliant job of introducing something new. And I should say I'm very pro-innovation and pro-technology when it is societally beneficial and, and ethically deployed. But, you know, growth and profit 
were, you know, were, were his principles in my framework terms. Facebook, there's no question that when your goal is to get eyeballs on screens for as long as possible, you're going to be behaving in a certain way. Part of it is the fact that sometimes the governance oversight isn't what it should be. Either founders have disproportionate power over boards or boards are afraid for one reason or another to stand up and, and change things. So there's definitely a governance aspect to it. Some of it is slowly starting to change. We saw the business roundtable come out with a big discussion about corporate purpose. We recently saw in the, you know this week's news, there are a number of companies that are, are withdrawing from donating to certain uh, Republican candidates who were part of the refusal to certify the vote. Lowe's did that. I, Jamie Dimon at, at JP Morgan came out. I mean, when things really got sort of beyond the pale. So... I think the thing that's really important for everybody to remember is that it's no one stakeholder and it's no one action. Some of these things are going to take regulation. Some of them are going to take consumer uh, decisions. Some of them are going to take, you know, the, the, the corporates making decisions. And indeed, at Uber, with my example, now there's a new CEO and he has taken the reins and he, you know, he has come his the first thing he said is, you know, it's about doing the right thing. Now, that's easier said than done. But, you know, there's there's progress. And I think one thing that's interesting in, in the point you make there is that what these principles are that guide us is 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 so important. You know, people, your, your framework provides a great deal, but it also draws uh, from its first point on what one's principles are. And, and my kind of last question, I think, really, if it's not too much like leaving our listeners with with extra homework is 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 around that, you know, if listeners feel there's more they want to do to figure out for themselves, in particular around what their principles are, what they value and what they don't, rather than the process of then applying those principles to decisions. Where might they uh, sort of go to, to think more deeply about that? Can you suggest any reading, any watching, any material of one kind or another that'll help people to figure out fundamentally what they think matters, and then hopefully take that and apply it to the, in, in the kinds of ways that you describe? Sure. Well, in the book, I give a lot of examples, and it's collected over years of Stanford students. So there are a lot of things, and, and typically when people look at the list that I have in the book, some will just pop out and really resonate. But principles are really about deciding who do you want to be. They tell the world who you are and how you're going to behave, and to some extent, they tell the world what you're going to expect of others. Uh, and in general, I'm quite practical. I say, think about five or six or seven, not 12 or 15. Think about, do you want to be known as somebody who values truth, generosity? And the other just practical tip is try to stay away from having too many that achieve the same thing. So you, so that you, you touch on a number of different areas, like, for example, truth and compassion and honesty, all sort of, of hit at different things. But the other thing is, who do you admire? And what qualities do they exhibit? And the who do you admire can be in literature. It can be in the news. It can be someone from history. So I think that's the easiest way without sort of giving too much scholarly homework. I think that's kind of the easiest way. But if I may, I just want to be really clear about something. So I, I don't tell people what to do in the book. And in fact, your example of principles is, is one very good example of that. I can't possibly know what's important to, to readers. I can't possibly know you know, what it would be like to live out the consequences of the decisions that they'll make. But the one thing I can say is that I think my least favorite word in the English language is perfection. And none of this is about perfection. 
We all make mistakes, and one of the things I try to do in the book is to talk about ethical resilience and recovery. So I hope everyone will, you know, ditch the word perfection from the vocabulary and go out and 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 you know explore and and think about making our best decisions. And if things don't go well, which they don't always go well for me, there's plenty in there about how to how to find our way back. Absolutely, and I think that's right from this first idea of the um, banishing the binary. It's not. It, there's no com- sort of perfection, and there's plenty of complexity, but there's also plenty of guide points you can use to find your way through it all. I'd like to thank Susan um, so much for a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure. Brilliant. Um, All kinds of useful information um, there. Hopefully uh, everyone's enjoyed it. I'm Josh Lowe and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.